encourage you to get a Bible and be turning to 2 Samuel chapter 15. And we'll be beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 15 there in just a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 15 beginning at verse 1 is the launching point for our study. And I want us to begin with the story of Absalom's rebellion against King David. <clears throat> Absalom, who was David's son, wanted to be king in David's place. So chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, verses 1 to 6 says, Absalom won the hearts of Israel. Look at verse 6. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. If you want to take the leadership role, you have to win the hearts of the people, and that he did. Beginning at verse 7 through verse 12, he went to Hebron seeking to be king. <clears throat> he wants to be king in place of his dad. And so he went saying, he sent spies throughout, verse 10 says, of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. He's doing everything within his might and within his power to be king. Absalom's rebellion only gets worse. The next three chapters, chapters 16, 17, and 18, tells us how bad his rebellion got. In chapter 16, beginning at verse 15 through 23, he rebels and takes David's concubines. Now, that might seem on the surface as something, well, David shouldn't have had the concubines to start with, nor should Absalom have gone, but that was a statement of rebellion. To take the king's concubines was claiming to be king yourself. And so that was a great statement of rebellion. In chapter 17, he pursues after David. And finally, David has to respond. So now that gets us to chapter 18, where we want to spend a little time. So go to chapter 18, if you haven't already got there. And what we have in chapter 18 is David sends men to resist Absalom's rebellion. And I want you to notice at verse 5, David gave instructions to deal gently with Absalom. I want you to stop the, the force. I want you to go stop Absalom. He's after me, he's pursuing me, he wants to overtake me. He wants heat to be king instead of me, but what I want you to do is stop him, but I don't want you to, to treat him roughly. In fact, notice what he said at verse 5. He said, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. That's what I want you to do. Beginning at verse 6 through verse 8, there was a fierce battle. A fierce battle. The people of Israel overthrown there before the servants of David and a great slaughter of 20,000 men took place there that day. What a fierce battle there was. Verses 9 to 18 said Absalom was killed. That was the end of the rebellion. Now, the news of that comes to David. This is where it gets interesting. The news of this comes to David. This begins at verse 19. This is where we want to focus in our study tonight. Starting at verse 19 down through verse 23, the news of this comes to David. And without retelling the whole story, you remember this when David is sitting at the gate of the city waiting for the messenger to come. And they see a messenger a long way off. And maybe we can tell by the way he's running and who he's with, whether it's good news or bad news. David can't wait to hear how the battle went. Absalom's been killed, but David doesn't know that yet. Not until the messenger comes. And as soon as the messenger gets there, I want you to notice at verse 29. Here's the basis for our study. Look at verse 29. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? You might underline that in your Bible. Is the young man Absalom safe? David wanted to know. 
That's all he cared about at this point. He's really not so much concerned how else the battle went, what all was accomplished, but I want to know about Absalom. Is the young man Absalom saved? Drop down to verse 33. Having found out that Absalom was not saved, Absalom had been killed. You see what the king does. He goes into his chamber at, at, over the gate and he wept saying, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. When you see a father's concern for his son at verse 33, but I want us to go back to verse 29. Is the young man safe? And I want to suggest to you that every parent needs to be asking that very same question. Is the young man safe? The English standard and American standard rendered that, is it well with the young man? I know y'all were trying to resist Absalom. I know you were trying to stop his force. I know you were trying to put a stop to everything he was doing. But I'm concerned about Absalom. Is it well with Absalom? Is the young man safe? Every parent needs to be asking the same question. We should be concerned about their physical safety. When the child is born, we're concerned of whether we're going to handle them properly. Are they getting the right nutrition? Are they being fed properly? As we transport them, are they put in the car seat safely? Are they buckled properly? We want to make sure the young man is safe. That's what we want to make sure. We need to be concerned about their physical safety. But more important and of greater concern is their spiritual safety. We need to be raising the same question. Is the young man safe? How are things going with them spiritually? How are things going with them as far as their training and pointing them in the right direction? Is the young man safe? We go back to our text at verse 29 in the text says, is the young man safe? I want to take that phrase, but we'll apply that to the young man or to the young woman. You may be raising a young man, and the question needs to be, is that young man safe? But equally as true as you're raising a young woman, you need to be asking the question, is that young woman safe? Are things well with them? I want you to notice that the safety of the child is conditional, meaning it depends. Let's go back to the physical safety. The question may be, is this young child safe? And the question is, well, it depends. What are you feeding the child? Is the child safe as we transport them in the car? Well, it depends. Is the car seat put in properly is the, or is the, is the child strapped properly? Did you even put them in the car seat? It depends on some things. The same thing is true when it comes spiritually. So tonight, let's talk about, is the young man safe? The very question David raised. Well, that depends. Depends on what? Is the young man safe? Well, that depends upon his grounding. When you start raising that question about your own child, is the young man safe? I want to know. I want to know, is, is everything well with my child? Well, it depends on their grounding. What do we mean by their grounding? Well, let's start with Luke chapter 2 and notice the case of Jesus. This is the story in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus was in his youth and he had been left behind, you remember, in Jerusalem. His parents go back and they find him. And then the comment is made about his childhood from that point to his adulthood. And verse 52 of Luke chapter 2 says... That Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And what I learned from that is that Jesus was trained intellectually. 
Jesus was also trained physically. He was trained religiously and he was trained socially. You see, he was grounded. He is a young child. He was grounded. I want to suggest to you that a, man, a child's mind and behavior is pliable. A child's mind and behavior is pliable and it must be instructed in the right way. Let's get our Bibles and look at some very familiar texts and then we'll make some application thereof. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. As Moses is preaching on the verge of marching into the land of Canaan, it is important that the people remain faithful to God and their children remain faithful to God and that they not veer to the right or to the left. Moses tells these parents this beginning at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. These words have I commanded that shall be in your heart. In other words, you live them and you practice them yourself. Let's go further. Look at verse 7. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. The word diligently suggests something of a sharp instrument as if you press it into them. Sometimes parents say, you know what? I don't want to force anything on my children. I'd like to expose them to the Bible. I'd like to expose them to other things and let them choose for themselves. Moses said, look at verse 7 again, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You press that into them. You teach them diligently to your children and you talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Use every opportunity you can to impress them with the word of God. The child's mind is pliable and consequently they must be instructed in the right way. You are familiar with Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train a child in the way that he should go. That involves a number of things. That would involve certainly the training them in the way they should behave themselves. That would involve teaching them the way of Christianity, the way they should go. But it would also involve some other things that we'll be talking about this evening. Teaching them about how to live life. Tra train them in the way they should go. And when, they'll old, when they're old, they'll not depart from it. Let's go to the New Testament this time in Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 4. We'll come more than once to this context. In living the Christian life, Paul instructs, gives instructions concerning the family in chapters 5 and 6. And he says here at chapter 6 and in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. There is discipline of the Lord. And bring them up in the confines of that discipline. I want to suggest to you that a person is the product of his teaching by word or by example. Get that fixed in your mind for a moment. A person is the product of their teaching. It might be teaching by instruction. It might be teaching by example. Let's go to Ezekiel 16 verse 44. When a child becomes, what a child becomes is the direct result of what and how he was taught and what he was shown. The proverb says, I know that's a, from Ezekiel, but it is a proverb, like mother, like daughter. In other words, children generally turn out to be just like we train them. Are there exceptions? That's the nature of proverbs. There are exceptions. Train a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old enough, well, there are exceptions to that. The general rule is how the child turns out is exactly how they were trained so is the child safe? Is the young man safe? Well, it depends on their training. Depends on their grounding. What he becomes is the direct result of how and what he was trained. You see, if the child is going to be a strong Christian, that has to be taught. 
So we say, I want my child to be a Christian. I want the young man to be safe. Then make sure that's taught and that's instructed in that shown. I want to suggest to you that a child will withstand the storms and the winds of the world only if they become grounded. We're talking about more than just being grounded in, in obedience in the sense of they learn to be obedient to their parents and their well-behaved children. Is your child being grounded, for example, in the basics? Is your child being grounded in Bible authority? You say, I think my child is safe. I give them a good education. I've taught them well. I sent them to the best schools and they're very smart. But you know what? They may not be grounded in the principle of Bible authority and how to establish it and how to apply it. And they may be a part of a church who begins to practice something contrary to the will of God and they'll never recognize there's anything wrong with it. They'll never know it because they don't have the basics of authority. Oh, they're very smart, have book knowledge, but do they understand Bible authority? and what's authorized and what's not, and how to identify that in a local church. Or they only know application, but don't know the principle behind it. Do they, are they grounded in what the church is, the nature of the church? Are they grounded in the basics? You see, a child needs to be grounded in evidences. That there is a God, and the Bible is the Word of God, and grounded in respect for the Word. Your child may be exposed in the world, not only in school, but in the world in general, to questions about God and whether the Word is inspired of God. And so they may be exposed to things that are going to be a challenge to their faith. Are they grounded in evidences? Is the young man safe? Does he know the text in its context, as Micah treated us to this morning? Do they know the text in its context so they can recognize when someone takes the text out of its context so that they know error is being taught or do they not have a clue how a text fits into the context? Are they going to Bible class all of the time so they're treated to a text in context study? Is the young man safe? Good question, isn't it? Depends on his grounding. Is the young man safe? Well, that depends on honoring parents. Let's go back to the case of Absalom. Absalom's downfall and Absalom's ruin was brought on by a perverted attitude toward his father. It's obvious beginning in chapter 15. Gets worse in 16, 17, and then later even in chapter 18. I want to suggest to you that children who hear and honor their parents, they respect their parents, will be safe. Now let's go back and trace some Old Testament references, and then we're going to see them quoted and alluded to in the New Testament. Let's go back again to Deuteronomy. This must have been important on the verge of crossing into the land of Canaan, because this again is a principle Moses was preaching in his sermons. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and in verse 16. Deuteronomy 5 and in verse 16. This is the reiteration of the Ten Commandments, and we're going to go back and see the beginning of that in Exodus 20 in a moment. But this is where it's being reemphasized. Look at verse 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that, that what? That your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the, in which the, in the land in which the Lord is giving you. Remember the question, is the child safe? Is the young man safe? Here's a text that's telling me it's dependent upon whether or not they're learning the respect and honor their parents. It prolongs their life, the text says. Well, let's go to another passage, this time in Exodus chapter 20. 
This is the first of the giving of the Ten Commandments. It wasn't actually given a second time. It's the reiteration in Deuteronomy chapter 5. When it was first given in Exodus chapter 20, notice in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land in which the Lord God has given you. There was something about teaching your children to obey their parents and to respect their parents that produced longevity not only of life but dwelling within the land. That ought to be obvious to us and we'll get some application to that in a moment. Let's go to another passage in the Old Testament, this time in the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs are full of admonitions to parents of how to rear and to raise their children. So as a footnote, as you're turning there, that if you are a young parent and you say, I'd like to read a good book on how to rear children that'll help me more than any other book, read the book of Proverbs. You'll find no book more helpful in rearing the raising of your children. Look at verse 1. A wise son heeds a father's instructions. Why does he heed them? Because he's learned to obey and to respect and to honor the parents. Now, since we've come to the New Testament and tie those together, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 2 says, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Now, what was the promise? Here it is. Look at verse 3, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So here is something about the safety of the child is connected with hearing and honoring and respecting their parents. Here's what I'm suggesting to you. Is the children who respect and obey their parents are the kind of children who will learn to respect others. Is the child safe? Is all well with the child? You teach them to respect the parents and they'll learn to respect others. Show me a child that's growing up and they don't have any respect for others. It's a child who doesn't really respect their parents. You see, a child that respects and obeys the parents are the children who live the kind of life that most likely promotes longevity. And thus they're safer. How so? You see, the child that learns to respect and obey their parents usually is the kind of child that does the kinds of things that promote longevity of life. They abstain from things that are destructive to them physically. They're more subjected to obedience to the civil law. And on we could go talking about things that may promote their physical safety. And so it's more likely they'll live longer on earth. You see, the child that respects and obeys the parents are the children that are more apt to listen to God's Word. Sometimes a child is raised and reaches adulthood and they're not listening to the Word of God at all. It may have been a child who didn't listen to the parents and didn't respect their parents. The child that is taught to respect and obey their parents is more apt to listen to the revelation of God as they get older. Is the child safe? Is the young man safe? Well, it depends. Depends on its grounding. Depends on honoring the parents. And thirdly, depends on the work ethic of the child. Depends on the work ethic of the child. You see, children must be taught a strong work ethic. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verse 10. Children need to learn to work for what they have. That's your job as a parent to teach them that. You see, 2 Thessalonians 3 said that if a man would not work, neither should he eat. But there's a Bible principle, you work for what you have. And so we're raising, we're raising an, 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 I'm not saying that we as Christians are, but this society is raising an environment of people that thinks that we are entitled to have things given to us and we don't work for what we have. 
It's all in the rearing and the training of the child, isn't it? See, they need to be taught a principle that you work for what you have. If a man won't work, neither should he eat. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Paul says that him that stole steal no more, but let, rather let him work with his hands that he may have to give to him that hath need. See, he needs to be able to have enough for, not only for himself, but to give to other people who may be in need. But where does he get that? He works with his hands. That's a work ethic. Strong work ethic. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 7. Teaching your children a strong work ethic is not only teaching them to work, that you've got to work in order to make money. You've got to work in order to have and work in order to eat. But they ought to be taught the principle that we, as a worker, you as a child of God, because you are trying to serve God, you're going to do the best quality work that you can. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Ecclesiastes 9 in verse 10. Whatever you do, do everything you have. Put all of your energy, all of your life, all of your vitality in that. Do the best you can in the work that you do. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. This is talking about being obedient to your master. Whatever you do, do it heartily. Put your life, your energy into that like you're working for the Lord because you are working for the Lord. You know what that means? You teach your child when they get that job of flipping burgers, you make sure you're the best burger flipper there is. So it may not be much of a job. You do the best job you can do. And when they get the job sweeping the floors, the janitor, you tell them you be the best floor sweeper there is. You do the best you can do. And then when they become a doctor or they become a lawyer or they become a dentist or they're a plumber or a carpenter or a shift worker or working on the line, they do the best job they can do. They put everything they have into it. Not because they don't look at how much money they're making. They don't look at, at whether or not others are doing better or worse. They do the best that they can do. They have a good, strong work ethic. Is the child safe? Child is safe as the child is a busy person. And I want to tell you that when a child has a strong work ethic, they're going to be busy and they won't have time for the tempter. So what's Matthew 6 have to do with that? We're to be praying that we be not led into temptation. One of the things that may free us from temptation is being busy, keeping our minds busy, keeping our bodies busy. You see, a busy person doesn't have time for the tempter. Proverbs 19.15 says a busy person will never hunger. They will never go without a busy person will not have time for idle, work, idle gossip. They don't have time to be idle. They have a strong work ethic. They're going to be busy. They're going to be working. And when they're without a job, they're going to be looking for a job. They have a strong work ethic because that's what you taught them. They're safe when they have that work ethic. And they don't have time for gossip. Let's go to Proverbs 10 and in verse 5. Proverbs 10 and verse 5 says, The busy person is the kind of person that plans ahead. He plans ahead. In other words, he thinks about the future. Look at Proverbs 10 and in verse 5. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. What's he gathering in summer for? He's planning for the winter. He's looking ahead. He's thinking about his family for the future. That's strong work ethic. I want to tell you that many parents do an injustice to their children by not teaching them how to work. They may not think I have anything to give them to do. I don't have any job for them to do. And the child grows up and they've been entitled to everything and they don't have a strong work ethic. That's an injustice to a child. Sometimes we might have to create a job for the child. 
A good friend of mine who passed away several years ago, much older than me, but when he was growing up, he said that he raised cotton. His daddy raised a little patch of cotton. And he said, we got out and we hoed that and we planted it by hand and we worked it by hand. And he said, we worked ourselves to death raising this cotton. And he said, as I got older and went back home, I said, Daddy, that little patch of cotton, now that I've grown up, is just a little small patch. I thought it was bigger as a child. But he said, now that I'm a man, I, I see it's just a small patch. I don't see how you made any money raising cotton. Daddy smiled and said, I wasn't raising cotton, son. I was raising boys. Maybe we need to think about raising boys and raising girls. Not whether the money is there, whether or not we make any money or lose money. Are we raising boys and girls? Are we teaching them a strong work ethic? Is the child safe? Is the young man safe? Well, it depends on their grounding, honoring the parents, the work ethic, but it also depends on their associations. So I want to know, is the young man safe? I want to tell you the wrong crowd corrupts good qualities. You remember 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 6, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, it doesn't take but just a little bit of leaven to corrupt the whole lump. It doesn't take but just a little bit of influence of sin to corrupt good morality. So you've worked hard all of your life trying to instill good morality in your children and their associations. Just a little bit of influence of leaven can influence them in the wrong direction. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to spend a little more time in Proverbs, twice at least, in Proverbs chapter 1. So you might put a marker there. The proverb writer warns, saying, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Here, if that leaven comes to you, say no to it. And if they come to, to you and say, Come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without a cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down into the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possession and fill our houses with spoil. Cast your lot among us. Look at verse 15 now. My son, do not walk in away with them. Stay clear of that. What's his warning? The wrong crowd can corrupt your good qualities. Now listen to me carefully as I suggest a friend, though they may be considered as a good friend, that friend can plant ideas that encourage by their example, both good or bad. How so? Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Here's a case in point. Jonadab was a friend to Amnon. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 13. It hadn't been that long ago we were in 2 Samuel. And you remember how Amnon was, had his eyes set on Tamar. That he wanted to have an illicit relationship with her, but he hadn't figured out how he's going to do that. <clears throat> and so now, I want you to notice at verse 3, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. It was his friend. What does Jonadab do? Jonadab comes to him and says, here, here's how you do this. What you need to do is act like you're sick and tell your dad you want her to come and to cook a meal for you and come into your household. And when she dies, here's what you're going to do. You're going to then approach her. And so he does it. Verse 11, he says, come lie with me, my sister. How did it ever reach that point? Where did that idea come from? His friend put it in his mind. His associations had a whole lot to do with it. Friends plant ideas and encouraged by their example. Let's go back to Proverbs 1. I said we'd come back to that. You remember what they did? They gave reasons why you should participate with them. In other words, your friends are not just going to say, hey, we're doing this. And if you don't want to, 
Don't, but they may give you reasons why what they're doing, which is contrary to the will of God, is okay. For example, here's what they'll do. Look at Proverbs 1. Go back there with me. They're going to say, let us lurk secretly. I'm at verse 11. Let us lie and wait to shed blood and lurk secretly for the innocent without a cause. In other words, why don't you do what others are afraid to do? Be bold. Don't be so scared. They're going to say this. We shall find, verse 13, all kinds of precious possession and fill our houses with spoil. There's benefit in doing this. You're going to be better because you go with us. They begin to reason things out. And on they go. Go to Proverbs 22. We learn and follow the examples of our friends. All of us are influenced by friends. Now before we read the verse, just stop and think with me for a moment. How many things are you doing now in your life? I'm not talking about bad things. I'm just saying maybe good things. Maybe it's a product you bought. Maybe it's a, a hobby you have. Maybe it's uh, the vehicle you're driving. It may be where you're living. There's something in your life that you've been influenced by your close friend who, by their example, suggested to you something. Or maybe they suggested you get involved doing the same kind of hobby they're involved in or their sports or recreation. And so you're doing the very same thing because of a friend. Every one of us. With that in mind, let's go to Proverbs 22, verse 24 and 25. Make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man, do not go. Now, what's wrong? That's not necessarily an immoral person. But I don't need to be around and have, be friends with a person who's angry and furious. Verse 25, are you reading with me? Lest you learn his ways. How do I learn his ways? By his example. He's not coming to me most likely saying, you know what? I'm angry and you need to be angry too. I fly off the handle. I wish you would fly off the handle too. We're just learning by his example. Lest you learn his ways and he set a snare for your soul. What I want to suggest to you is a righteous person is careful about his friends. The righteous chooses his friends carefully, the proverb writer would say. Depends on his associates. Is the young man safe? Good question, isn't it? Well, you see, that depends. That depends upon his entertainment. Depends on the entertainment. See, a person's entertainment could feed their mind with immorality. See, that comes in various forms. It might be the music we listen to, whether it's listening to the audio or watching the videos of the music. The music is good within itself, but some of the music may have immoral messages. Much of the country music does. It may have a message that suggests something contrary to the will of God. It may be something we're watching on television. It may be movies that we're watching on our devices or maybe watching them on TV. It may be videos we're watching on YouTube or some other means of, of getting our entertainment. We might be treated to a number of things, many forms of ungodly. It might be profanity, laced with profanity. It might be something where there's partial nudity that we see. It might be that we're treated to fornication and affairs. Not that we're seeing all the gory details, but it may be that we're watching something where we're just treated as if fornication and having an affair is just the norm. Everybody does that. We may be treated to something like anti-family messages, anti-Christian messages. What do I mean by anti-family? Have you noticed in some of the sitcoms, I don't watch hardly any of those, but if you 
for years they've had this message where either the parents, but particularly the dad, is always treated as the big dunce. So that's an anti-family message. While it may be funny and we laugh at that, but the message you're supposed to get, by the way, we can provide quotes from the, the producers of the shows where they have had humanists come in from the 80s on, have had humanists come in advising them, how do we get the message of humanism across? And that's one of the messages they wanted to get across, is that we want an anti-family message. We want to paint the parents and the dad particularly as are just, they, they don't know anything. They're dumb. They're, they're crazy. They don't know what they're doing. So the children have more sense than the parents. We may be treated to all of that. Let's list some rules for entertainment. What should be some rules for entertainment? Number one, it does not need to stir, stir impure thoughts. How so? Well, Galatians 5 talks about lasciviousness, that which tends to lust, leads to lust. That's just a case in point. So maybe I'm watching something and, and so it causes me to have impure thoughts, then that's not decent entertainment. It might be a song. It might be a video. It might be a movie. It doesn't need to stir impure thoughts. Here's a second rule. It must not desensitize us to the world. Now let's go to Psalm 106. We'll forget Psalm 1. Psalm 1 makes a similar point, but Psalm 106 perhaps is even more powerful in making this point. What I want you to see is people became desensitized. Then we'll make some application to this. Look at verse 34. They did not destroy the people. Concerning him, the Lord said, commanded them that God had told them to drive these people out, have nothing to do with them in the land of Canaan. They didn't do that, but they mixed and mingled with them. Now look at verse 35. They mingled with the Gentiles. What was the problem with that? Well, they learned their works. In other words, as long as they're spending time with the Gentiles, they become desensitized to the way of the Gentiles, and they learn the way of the Gentiles. What's the next thing that happens? Look at verse 36. They served their idols and became a snare to them. Became so desensitized, it finally reached the point, they begin to sacrifice their own children. And so here's one of the rules of entertainment. It must not desensitize me. In other words, here's, here's the language. You say, are you saying it's a sin because I heard this song and had one bad word? I'm not arguing that. What I'm arguing is the more I listen to that kind of language, it desensitizes me so that I'm not bothered by bad language. The more we see of nudity, we become desensitized so I'm not bothered by nudity at all. I'm desensitized to that. Here's the third rule. Does it make me enjoy things that would be wrong for me to do? Romans 1 talks about one of the sins of the Gentiles. Not only did they do the things, but they had pleasure in those who were doing them. So maybe I wouldn't do this myself, but I sure do enjoy seeing somebody else do that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of having this affair, but I'm watching this movie where somebody else is having their affair, and it's quite interesting and enjoyable to watch. But I, I wouldn't do that. It's wrong for me, but I sure do enjoy watching them do that. Fourth. Does it encourage thinking that generates a better life? Do you remember this passage in Philippians 4? Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, think on these things. Remember that? What's that passage saying? It is not saying that to find something that's lovely and say, okay, I'm going to think about that today. And so, okay, that was lovely. I thought about that. And whatever things pure, let me think on something pure. But the point is, you think on it in view of becoming what you're thinking. So I want to be more pure. 
So I want to think on things that lead to purity. I want to think on things that lead to being more lovely, or whatever else may be mentioned in that context. That's the point of Philippians chapter 4. Is the young man safe? Well, it depends upon their use of tools. Number one, the child needs to realize they have tools. We're talking about using tools to fight temptation. We need to recognize we have tools in our bag that we can use. In other words, we need to be assured we can resist temptation. Let's start with the last passage here. James 4 says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So that tells me I have a bag of tools that I can go to and I can resist the temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says at verse 13, there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. Now there's a question, is that passage saying that temptation is common to everybody? We all share the same kind of temptation. Well, that's true, and that is one of the points the passage is making. The American Standard renders that such as you can bear, bearable to man. In other words, there is not a temptation that comes to you, but every person faces similar temptation, and it can be born. You can go through that temptation, and you don't have to resist. You have tools in your bag. Here's two we want to mention. Do you know how to use this tool? Recall the word in the moment of temptation. It's kind of simple. How so? Well, Psalm 119 verse 11 says, The word can prevent sin. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. So there's something about taking the word and keeping the word near and thinking on the word and reflecting on the word keeps us from committing sin. Case in point, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus resisted with the word. Remember? On three occasions in Matthew chapter 4, he responded, it is written. Secondly, it is written. And the third time he said, it is written. So use the tool of the word. So what am I going to do? I'm going to recall the warnings, the examples, and the consequence. See, the more familiar I am with the word and the more familiar my child is with the word, when, when the moment of temptation comes, they're going to think, you know, the Bible says that's wrong. And the Bible warned that if, if I do that, here's the consequence thereof. And, and I remember an example where someone did that, and, and it was terrible. For example, say a moment of temptation comes where the sin of fornication is on the verge, and you think, I, I might could yield to that. They think, you know what the Bible says, flee fornication. I remember that passage. And I remember an example of David. David did that. It didn't go well for David. David said, my sin is ever before me, Psalm 51 even after he was forgiven. And I remember the warning of Proverbs 6 says, wounds and dishonor will he get. See, recalling the word may prevent the sin. Here's another tool in the back, and that's the use of prayer to fight temptation. We need to be praying and before we ever get to the moment of temptation. You see, you may know the area where you might be tempted. You may be more prone to this temptation where I might be more prone to this temptation over here. So before I face that temptation again, I might ought to be praying, lead us not into temptation. I might need to be praying about that. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, Micah called our attention to that this morning, that we ought to watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Remember that? We ought to watch and pray about temptation that may be coming before it even comes. And I need to pray that I would see the door of escape. There is that door of escape. Help me, Lord, when I get to the moment of temptation to look for that door that I can get out of and I don't have to, to submit to that temptation. And I need to pray for strength to fight and to resist. 
And I want to tell you, when you pray in a moment of temptation, it's hard to sin and pray at the same time. Can you imagine someone praying fervently about this temptation and at the same time they're fervently praying, they're submitting to the sin itself? Is the child safe? Is the young man safe? It depends on their use of temptation tools. One more thing in the lesson is yours. Is the young man safe? And that depends upon finding a godly mate. You're concerned about your child? You say, I'm concerned about their welfare and their safety. Are you concerned about their welfare and their safety after they get married? And when they get to be old and when you're gone and they're still living on earth, are you concerned about their welfare and safety? Well, I'm going to tell you, that all depends on who they marry. Listen to this carefully as I suggest to you that who one marries makes a big difference. You say, I've heard that before. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, it does. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 16. Look at 1 Kings chapter 16. Ahab's wife, to he married. Jezebel, she had a very, very heavy influence on him. Let's see if that's not the case. Look at verse 30. Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it were a trivial thing. Now pay attention to that. As though it were a trivial thing. As if it didn't really matter. For him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. That he took as a wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal. The king of the Sidonians. What did that lead to? He went and worshipped Baal now. She brought her idolatrous worship in with her. Jump over to chapter 20 and verse 25. You remember this passage. Well you probably have it underlined in your Bible. Look at Proverbs, uh, not Proverbs, but 1 Kings 21 and verse 25. It's verse, chapter 21. That there was none like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. We're not through. Look at the rest of the verse. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Do you remember killing Naboth? That was her idea. That was her idea. Chapter 21. And trying to demonstrate what, who one marries makes a big difference. Solomon's wives caused even him to sin. Who one marries makes a difference. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14 in verse 8. Herod's wife, Herodias, she plotted. Now Herod is already wicked. That's, she didn't lead him to wickedness. He was already a wicked man before they ever got married. But they shouldn't have been married to start with. But I want you to notice at verse 8, she plotted ways for him to increase his sin. Already a wicked man, when he loses his head and makes a promise to the daughter, she tells the daughter, here's what you go in and tell him. Look at verse 8. Tell him, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Here's something we want. You ask him for that. Let's flip the coin on that. I want to tell you that elders' wives qualify then. We're trying to establish the point who one marries makes a difference. If a man's qualified to serve as an elder, his wife has qualified him. It's not the only qualification, but it has a great deal to do with him being qualified. Who one marries makes a difference. A man's wife, Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 18, is to be a help suitable for his needs. If his need is spiritual... And it is. If his needs to go to heaven in the after while, he needs a wife. She needs a husband that is suitable for their needs. God, a good, good mates, godly mates, seek to influence in the right direction. One last passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 
Here was this woman in 1 Peter chapter 3 whose husband had not yet obeyed the gospel, but he's going to be one through the conduct of the wife because she's concerned. She wants to know what can I do? How can I reach him? She's trying to influence in the right direction. In this case, it may involve keeping your mouth shut. I'll do that if it leads him in the right direction. I'll preach to him if it leads him in the right direction. Or I'll be quiet and set the example if it leads him in the right direction. Godly mates seek to influence in the right direction. What a question David asked. David loved his child. That scene in his weeping saying, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, Absalom, my son. Had I only died in your place. Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. But his question was, is the young man Absalom safe? It's a good question to ask him. Well, that depends on the grounding. Depends on honoring the parents. Depends on their work ethic. Depends on who they associate with. Depends on the entertainment. Depends on their use of tools to fight temptation. And depends upon finding a godly mate. Depends on a lot of things, doesn't it? Is the young man safe? What a good question. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?